Hello, everyone, and welcome to Women Leaders in Critical Care, a special podcast series led by our section editor on pulmonary and critical care medicine, Dr. Jasbal Singh. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions. I'm Jaspal Singh. I'm a pulmonary critical care physician at, at Atrium Health in Charlotte, North Carolina. And with me today in the second episode of the Women Leaders in Critical Care series is uh, Dr. Mita Kerlin from University of Pennsylvania and Sue Stemchek uh, from uh, Leahy Clinic. So uh, Mita, um, start with you. Can you introduce yourself, please, for the audience? Sure. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, my name is Mita Kerlin, and I am a pulmonary critical care attending at uh, the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and I'm, I'm really delighted to be here. My research focus has been in thinking about ICU organization and outcomes and implementing best practices. So I'm, I'm delighted to be here for this talk today. Well, thank, we're glad to have you. Thank you for making the time. And with me also is Sue Stempek. Sue, you want to introduce yourself as well? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So I am a physician assistant working in the medical ICU at Leahy Hospital and Medical Center. Some know it as Leahy Clinic. I am also the director of advanced practice here in our organization. And I am also a capacity management provider leadership role for our transfer center. And so I'm delighted to be here and talk about critical care resources with all of you. Great. Um, as some of you know, that's a big passion of mine. And so it's great to have both of you on here and both of you for all the great work you've been doing in the space. And um, and so, um, Mitha, we'll start with you. Um, one of the things I've been very interested in is sort of even before COVID-19, our country for the last couple of decades has been sort of evolving into this critical care crisis uh, related to the workforce, related to ICU resource utilization. Talk to us about sort of what that looked like historically and what the challenges were, if you don't mind, and kind of frame this problem for us today. Sure. Um, this is obviously a topic that's near and dear to me as well. Um, so, you know, I, I think maybe one thing that you're referencing by saying a couple of decades, back in 2000, there was sort of a big study that was published by Derek Angus and colleagues in JAMA, the Compact Study. And that was, I, it, to my knowledge, the first big projection of this workforce crisis um, among intensivists. And I think at the time, that crisis was only just beginning to be um, sensed or maybe realized, you know, demand and um, and supply were relatively matched. Um, but but this group projected that they would diverge greatly in the coming years. Um, and this actually um, got a lot of press, as I understand it at the time, um, prompted a report to Congress by HRSA um, and a lot of concern over what we we're going to do. You know, I think the issue, some of the issues that were really key here was Prior to about 2000, prior to that time, um, less than about a third of patients in ICUs were actually cared for by intensivists. Um, critical care was not the specialty that it is now, but um, there was a growing understanding by then that intensivist-led care actually may improve patient outcomes. Um, and so there were gonna be shifts in demand in the future. Um, not only because we had a growing population of elderly patients, the baby boomers were going to become um, elderly and more likely to develop critical illnesses. Um, we also had advances in medicine um, that were saving more lives, but these lives may also go on to require intensive care eventually. Um, and then of course, what I sort of started this with, more and more hospitals may shift to ICU staffing models that required more intensive staffing. So I think all of these were sort of incorporated into these, um, into these projections. 
No, it's an excellent start. And, um, and I think it, this has actually helped shape my career a lot about in my professional interests, actually, that the Derek Angus's work started, I think, really of everyone looking at this in a, with a much more critical eye. Um, and we've seen this sort of evolve and a number of strategies over the years have been deployed to address the crisis. And one of them is actually expansion of the workforce. So uh, with that, Sue, um, kind of pre-COVID, if you would talk to us a little bit about, you have a lot of experience developing the additional workforces that we've actually uh, involved in, as ICUs, as critical care is a team sport. Uh, one of the key workforce strategies has been expansion of advanced practice providers or APPs, PAs and MPs. And if you can talk a little bit about that and how that's shaping up around the country and what you all have done. Yeah, so I have um, both experience with this in private practice as well as at an academic medical center. And what I can say is years ago in private practice, we recognized, um, I worked in a multi, um, multidisciplinary private practice that was serving multiple hospitals in Metro Atlanta. And we recognized that it was very challenging for the physicians in their call schedule to be at the bedside of critically ill patients in a 24 hour model, serve the demands of the office practice, perform bronchoscopies and all of the other attending based demands on their time. And so we had a, a group of physicians who recognized that this was not a palatable um, state and had a few of us work on a training program. This was, this was years ago before APP fellowships were um, popular. And, but at the time we were very proud of coming up with an innovative design of training APPs specifically to be that boots on the ground bedside provider as an extension of the, of the physician. And that worked really well as we trained people to be very good at central lines and arterial lines, those procedures, and did depend on the in-house anesthesiologist for intubations for the most part. But it was really able to provide evidence-based critical care in a 24-hour model that was much less possible before we were doing this. And so um, that experience, as I um, came to Leahy Clinic, we, we had a, a very robust APP critical care program even when I came here, but recognized that we probably needed to augment, actually a large part of our program here is the extension of critical care outside the ICU. So we have APPs in our ICU, but also recognizing that critical care consults are of course also a 24 hour thing and providing the attending physicians the ability to focus on rounds and efficiency while using the APPs to, to be able to respond to our rapid response calls and critical care consults was also a very efficient model. So, um, you know, I think the application of APPs as an augmentation of the workforce may look different in each setting based on resources and demands on the critical care time and as, as well as the patient population. Um, so there is some iterative work at, at the organization level, but some principles that probably apply in most places. Well, that's well said. Um, that's very helpful um, if you think through this. Mita, you have any comments about this idea of building capacity through additional workforce or whether some other things that potentially you think might have helped develop capacity, as you might say, um, even prior to COVID? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's absolutely necessary, right? So like we have limits on the critical care intensivist workforce, critical care physician workforce that are based on how many people we can train, 
Um, you know, maybe we're going to be talking about burnout before this podcast is <laughs> over. Um, but but there's a lot of turnover amongst critical care clinicians um, for for good reason. Uh, and, and so I think that building capacity in innovative and creative ways is absolutely important. Um, the APPs, as Sue has discussed, has been a huge advance in our field. Um, I think there have been some other things that have advanced our field. So um, telemedicine is an example that comes to mind, um, both in the pre-COVID era and very much during our pandemic as well, uh, in my experience. So, so utilizing um, intensivists to be able to reach more patients, maybe more in a consultant role than in a primary role. Um, I think that there's a lot of potential there. I don't know if we can say it's reached sort of that, if, if we've sort of seen the promise um, achieved yet, but I, I think that uh, there, there's a lot of um, potential innovation there that I'm interested to see. No, that's great. What I hear right from both of you, if I hear, if I hear you right, is that Basically, there have been growing challenges in meeting the demands of critical care. The discipline itself has changed; has been changing. Um, there's a lot, number of different pressures and constraints, um, and then also that in the background we've been sort of working at building capacity in various shapes and forms through telemedicine, through APPs, and other and, and other other system design. But along comes COVID nineteen, and all of a sudden the system is stressed. Um, and every system has been stressed in some degree. And I was wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about what you've additionally, what you've just framed this critical care crisis and what the stressors are today that we've done and what we possibly are doing to meet those challenges, especially in your own institution. Start with you, Sue. Yeah, so um, as, as many organizations have, I, you know, I think we've all done some work in some way or another to augment our critical care workforce. And you know, for us in our organization, that, has, that was uh, very necessary in the spring with a very early and significant surge. And then we were able to, to take a break on that work in the summer and early fall, and now we're back to it. But I think that the lessons that we learned in the spring in Metro Boston, where we, we had a very early surge compared to a lot of the country, were was that the idea of advanced training for this flexible workforce, so I referenced the APPs specifically here, it was super important. So we were able to provide some just-in-time training for that workforce to help augment the critical care staff. But we actually found that the critical care, you know, intensivists, of course, and the APPs who critical care was their primary job, were also able to be very much at the elbow support for these kind of redeployed providers. And then what we did over the summer is we, we iterated on that experience and said, why don't we look for some true volunteers who wanna go through some training, not to be a critical care APP necessarily for their whole career, but to be better prepared with, with more in-depth training. So we created a rotational experience in our medical and cardiac ICUs so that these, these APPs could rotate from their primary job, which was a sacrifice for their home division, to learn about critical care, especially focused on ARDS shock and renal failure for us is how we shape the training. And then we have them rotating on a monthly basis to be prepared for that redeployment. And, and in fact, at the time that we're recording this podcast, we're probably about to, to do that redeployment and to see how it works. So I'm hopeful that we will have learned um, 
a, a better way to to train people in advance of redeployment, recognizing that it's it's not an optimal scenario for anybody. But I think we've always known that APPs are a relatively flexible workforce, and this is you know probably iterating even more on that than anybody ever thought was possible. Well, that's great work. Um, Mita, what are your thoughts? What are your, I mean, it's a very complex topic I recognize, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on sort of the lessons and what you've been working on. Yeah, I think um, we did a lot of the, we did a lot of similar things where we sort of um, asked and really, I would say got a great response from a lot of different groups who are not intensivists sort of by background um, to help. Um, and, and people that were very willing to, to step up and, you know, whether it be retrained um, or work on teams or whatnot, um, I think that uh, we had a lot of different creative solutions. I, I work in a hospital system that's actually six different hospitals. Um, there was a lot of sharing of information across the different hospitals um, at the sort of leadership level, which I think went a long way as well. Um, I'll say that one of the things that was most, I think remarkable was, um, was uh, sort of the ready deployment of these T models that were unique. Um, so what I mean by that is, for example, in the in the nursing um, groups, um, there would be sort of teams of critical care nurses with non-critical care nurses or medical intensive care nurses with, um, say, neurointensive care nurses, people that had different backgrounds, but complementary ones where everyone was sort of um, practicing at the top of their, their training and their license and, and sort of supporting the needs of patients in the ways that they were capable of. And I thought that was really remarkable. We also did that actually at the intensivist level. Um, so for example, I worked in an ICU back in, I think it was around um, maybe July. Um, so sort out of, as we were sort of coming down from this, the first surge um, in Pennsylvania where um, I had, we had two teams and I was the attending for one team and a cardiologist was the attending for the other team. And he, he wasn't an intensivist, but he was interested and he wanted to help. Um, he asked me if there were sort of ICU questions that he maybe wasn't as familiar with, but it sort of extended my expertise as an intensivist to twice as many patients um, as I would have otherwise been able to have. Um, and, and as we are thinking we too are, are just um, in the past week have reconfigured our ICUs again to be able, be able to accommodate more COVID ICU patients. We're definitely feeling the surge again. We're redeploying some of those team models, um, which I think have been um, very supportive and, and allow people to help where they can, but not feel overwhelmed. That's, that's very helpful. Um, so Mita, let me ask you something that's really near and dear to my heart. We did a very important publication on the the idea of nighttime staffing by intensivists and found it sort of did not change outcomes. Um, and I was wondering if how you put that in a context into today, is that a different frame or are you using that knowledge to sort of frame how you're staffing and building your teams, if you don't mind my asking? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, and one that uh, I, I think about a lot. And so I think there's there are only so many outcomes that have ever been sort of published on when we talk about the literature on nighttime staffing, right? Um, we've been very focused on, on singular things that are often very patient-centered, mortality, length of stay, um, things like that. And those are of course important and they're, they're hard clinical outcomes, but they do not tell the whole story. Um, and I think that, I, I don't actually, 
think that they can fully apply to where we are today in the pandemic, because it's not only about patient outcomes, although I think that's obviously a huge part of what we need to be working towards, but we also need to be sort of supporting our workforce here. Um, and in a model where you may have a lot of people at different times of day that are not necessarily trained intensivists or trained in critical care, um, having that extra layer of support um, is, is going to sort of provide a level of comfort um, and, and sort of situational control. That's an expression one of my, um, my mentors has used to describe this that I think is probably unmeasurable, but um, absolutely critical right now. I think it's really well said. Um, and so this is, that's a nice segue into thinking about situational control it makes me think about all the stressors involved. And I think I could probably speak for both of you that this has been a very stressful um, year so far and the, a year is not even over and it's, it's just building and mounting in terms of stresses. First of all, how are you all doing? And how are your teams doing? Um, yeah, so thanks for asking. Um, I'm, I think I'm doing fairly well given the circumstances. What I can say, and, and I think um, since this is a critical care centric conversation, I think it's okay to say here, I think critical care providers are very unique people. And one of the most heartwarming things for me as a critical care provider, as I've navigated both our incident command structure and different leadership roles in that, as well as being a clinician and also partnering with people who have, um, who are being redeployed, who are very anxious about that, is we support each other really well as a community in critical care. And that has just been validated for me over and over and over. And I feel very thankful to, for this to be my clinical subspecialty um, in how we navigate this. I, I think the converse of that, of course, is that this um, specific disease has been our burden. And you know, since March, we've all been managing this probably more than other groups of clinicians for the most part. I don't mean any disrespect to other specialties, but I do think we have found ourselves bearing this burden the whole time. We've not had a break. We've not left the ICU. We've still had COVID patients. And even if they're not all in the ICU, we're worried about the ones that are on the floor. And our volumes have fluctuated, but the burden has remained on the critical care teams. And I think those have risen to the occasion. But I do consistently worry myself and for my team that I work with clinically that we all are just worried every day about supporting each other and supporting our colleagues who may need to be redeployed and are less familiar. And that burden of making them comfortable sits with us as well. And so that's, it's not a terrible thing. It's just the, the, the worry that we bear every day. Mita, how are you guys doing? Yeah, Sue, that was so beautifully said. And I, I echo all of that. Um, I, I think we're doing okay. Um, you know, we, we, had a, we had a difficult period with the surge, but we were able to manage, the first surge, I should say, um, but we were able to manage as a team. And I think because everyone had such a team-oriented mentality, um, both amongst the, within sort of my division, in other words, amongst the clinicians um, and the APPs, and even more broadly within the ICUs. Like people are there to take care of each other. And I totally agree with you, Sue, that like, our specialty is one where people sort of face, like they run towards the challenges, not, not away from them. Um, and I'm, I'm so grateful for that. I too worry about 
you know, how everyone is feeling and managing with this second surge, you know, um, a lot of us probably hit pandemic walls over the, over the summer even. Um, and it was great to have a bit of a respite. Um, but we're all, I think, worried and I'm worried for, for our teams going forward for the next few months. I, I think everyone will, will get there and prevail. Um, but we have to just keep supporting each other. Yeah, that's very helpful. And um, and so when you think about this sort of what you've been through, and both of both of you, thank you for, thank you for your responses. Um, this podcast is also about women leaders, and as women, are there unique unique aspects of the story that you'd like others to know about? And uh, whatever you could you feel comfortable sharing with us, but I'm sure our listeners would love to hear how you're managing this, particularly as women leaders. You know, I um, I think I sh- I. I face a lot of the challenges that many, many women and men are facing right now, which is balancing professional responsibilities, um, fear of getting ill or getting my family ill with personal responsibilities, having young children um, at home, uh, homeschooling and, and like all of that. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a lot. Um, I, I don't know that it's necessarily specific to me or to women leaders, but, but it's a lot um, for, for all of us to manage. I think professionally as a researcher, um, it's been challenging to figure out where the research is going to go. You know, so many studies were put on hold. Um, I was meant to start a trial that was put on hold once around May and looks like it's going to be put on hold again now. Um, and, and these are realities that we sort of have to think about and, and deal with. Um, at the end of the day, I think that, you know, seeing, again, not to be um, repetitive, but like just just seeing how teams have come together to support each other in all of these different fronts um, has been amazing and what sort of keeps keeps us all going, I think. That's very nicely said, thank you. Sue? Yeah, I certainly can echo a lot of those things on both a personal and professional level. Um, I think I would add to that I do worry a bit uniquely about women leaders as that um, I think societally we still have some opportunity to better support um, our the growth of our women leaders and the we all know from what we see in the popular media as well as in some studies that the effects of the pandemic and how we've had to navigate our personal and professional lives may affect women disproportionately. And so for growth of leadership opportunity, that may be an additional barrier that pre-COVID women weren't having. Um, I'm very fortunate to personally not be in that situation, I don't think, uh, at least not that I can see with my own eyes, but but I'm sort of aware that that may be true for, for some women leaders. And then the other thing I would add that I've sort of had a unique experience being a physician assistant um, at a a higher role in our incident command structure, which has been an interesting experience uh, for a number of reasons in, in a good way. And my organization has put the faith in me to, to be in the role, um, but the reporting structures are quite different than our day-to-day operations. So I think in some ways, you know, I sort of look at it as potentially a way to, to break some barriers that otherwise, you know, would be out there and we never would have had these opportunities to to think this way or to look at each other in that light. So um, I think there may be some positives that come out of this. And the other um, side effect for, I think, unfortunately, sometimes, especially women is maybe we've learned, especially in medicine, a little bit about how to work remotely. 
we were never good at this compared to other industries and maybe we'll become a little bit better. Obviously, when we work clinically in the ICU, that's a little bit challenging, but in a lot of our research or administrative work that we do, maybe we will become a little bit more friendly to each other when we have our living room in the background. That's really well said. I think there's a lot of good points in there. So it sounds like you're also hopeful for the idea of, you know, teams working remotely, getting to know each other that way, working together collectively, opportunities professionally for growth. Hopefully the country's now paying attention to that uh, from that perspective. And Mita, I think I assume you're hopeful also that there'll be some um, adjustments in the um, promotion pathways for women as well with the current pandemic. I don't know if you can talk a little bit about that because that's getting a lot of national attention recently. Yeah, I think that is an important point, and I and I love the point Sue that you brought up that um, that maybe we're we're working towards a, a, a way in which um, the work environment can be a little bit more friendly um, and and flexible for for women um, physicians, women leader, women leaders who who need that. Um, so I I too am hopeful. Um, I think that a lot of attention is being paid to things like you know academic promotion and 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 giving sort of um, women in general and everyone um, uh, some sort of support and credit um, in this time and recognizing just the impact that COVID is having on, on people's careers and their career trajectories. I want to ask you both real quickly, if you can leave one thing that, leave our audience with one thing that you're hopeful for moving forward. One of them is, is, is a thanks for people like you to, to be providing a lens on the unique position that women leaders in medicine may be in, and especially as it applies to our specialty in critical care. I think that we have new opportunities in the pandemic and with, with leaders like yourself to provide a platform to bring these things forward. So thank you for that. Um, the other thing I'll, I'll add myself that I feel very strongly about is we have turned our world upside down in the last 10 months and we should, and, and I, I can tell that we're both motivated by this, we should not let that opportunity go to waste. And we should continue to push our organizations, especially administrative leaders to provide the space for us to benefit from that innovation. And so my own commitment as we, you know, hopefully someday come out of this, not exactly sure when, is, is we don't let those learnings go to waste and that we also push the organization to provide this type of platform because we never had the opportunity to iterate so quickly in a hospital before. And I think we can all be very proud of what we've done at the bedside on behalf of our patients. And I would love to continue the opportunity to efficiently do that. That's really well said, Sue, thank you. Mita, what are you hopeful for? Yeah, um, so first I'll just echo that thanks. This is really such a, a unique and wonderful opportunity. And I hope that this, um, this, this starts a new, a new era um, in, in sort of highlighting and, and bringing forward the, the important um, roles that women play um, in leadership in medicine. Um, I think that just to, to sort of um, jump off of, of what Sue just said, um, yeah, like let's make sure we sort of take the good that has come out of, of this, you know, really in many ways horrible experience that we've had for the past year um, and, and make life better later on. And, and I'll, get, I'll go back to the, the sort of team models that I see growing up everywhere. Um, I, I really have never seen such like positive collaboration across so many different people 
often who barely know each other um, as what I've seen sort of in the COVID ICUs in my experience in the past 10 months. And so I hope that that's a new model for care going forward. That's both of you, that's really well said. Um, and uh, I, this is uh, Jaspal Singh from Consultant 360. I have Sue Stempeck with me from, from uh, Leahy Medical Center and Mita Kerlin from University of Pennsylvania Healthcare System. And I just wanna say thank you to our guests today for a phenomenal and inspirational talk uh, on episode two of Critical Care Women Leaders. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks uh, again. Take care, have a great day.